and good afternoon to all of you. I praise the Lord this morning to be able to speak to you for a few minutes, and I'm so grateful that my voice is amplified so you can hear me. You know, I made a deal with the Lord when I very, very early in my Christian walk that I would never turn down an opportunity to speak for him. I didn't know anything about all this stuff back then. And I've tried to be faithful to that, not always understanding that I'd be called upon in sundry times to, to just speak a word that uh, this is one of those times that I, when, when uh, it was known that we were going to do a J-term and just some of us just just off that we'd love to do a chapel service during J term, so each of us just kind of volunteered to just speak. I don't usually just volunteer to speak, but I wanted to speak today, and I'm not quite sure why. I've been sharing with my class a little bit of my testimony. I'm going to share a little bit more of it with you, and it goes something like this. It was the very last Monday in August of 1965 that I sat at a table, a picnic table outside with a camp staff. They had invited me back because the Friday before, I sat around the campfire with them and they wouldn't let me accept Christ. They wanted me to go home, be with the, my, my partners for the weekend, not go to the local dance, but to go to uh, the local Youth for Christ meeting. They told me what was going to happen to me when I told my friends I was going to the meeting instead of to the dance. And sure enough, they laughed at me and did all the things that the people said right down the line. So the first chance I got when I got back to the camp as their assistant athletic director, when I was just six, I was 15 years old, um, I, I sat at the table. They started praying around. And, and slowly, 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 it was coming to me. I had no idea what I was supposed to say or what I was going to do. But there was this little white guy. His name was Mac. Mac prayed, and then he reached up and put his hand around my shoulders. And the whole world changed, literally. For the first time in my life, I saw the tree leaves sparkling. And all I knew to say was, I think I found, I don't know what I found. I really didn't. I didn't realize how much I didn't know until the next morning I came out of the cabin and I'm getting to walk to the place where they're serving breakfast and the camp director, a little old guy named Ray Curry, hated that guy, come out his, bounding out of his cabin door, sees me in the walkway and he says to me, what happened to you? Nothing. I'm, I'm fine. He just smiled up on walking. The very next morning, I come out of my cabin. I walk towards the cafeteria area. He comes out of his cabin, and he's walking towards me. What happened to you? He's irritating me, but nothing. <laughs> he just smiled again and walked on. The third day, same thing. He must have been waiting for me to come out of my cabin. He, he, he's walking towards me. What happened to you? He didn't wait for me to answer. You became a Christian. Oh. 
That's the right answer. What does it mean? A week later, I get together with the guys. I get back home. They'd been to the camp too, but they didn't accept the Lord. They take me out into the woods. We have a spot. We had a spot out there. They'd steal a watermelon from the local grocery store because they always kept me outside overnight. And we got out there, and they built a campfire, and we, we spent the night there. The next morning, we all got up, and, they, and the other horsemen, we called ourselves the four horsemen, they, they surrounded me at the fire and said, what happened to you? They were talking about what happened to me when they had me sitting at that campfire and were talking to me about Christ. And I didn't know to tell them what happened to me. All I knew was that something was different. They, they didn't press me, and I didn't have a good answer for them. It's just that they put their hands on me, I don't know why, and they told me goodbye. And I stopped being a horseman that day. I got spotlighted by the Youth for Christ organization, and I was, a, I was just coming to my own in terms of being a jock and stuff. And all across northwestern Pennsylvania had this fan club, all these little white kids who were reading about me in the paper, and their parents and families were talking about me and all this stuff. And it was like this. I, I, I was becoming more and more successful on the football field and on the wrestling mat, and I was with YFC getting spotlighted, and I had my letter jacket with all the gold on it and stuff, and I've been doing this for 12th grade, high school. I'm the big black Christian jock involved with Youth for Christ walking around the school carrying my stack of books with my Bible on top of my stack of books because that's how they taught us to give a testimony. That was it. Go into 12th grade homeroom, sit down, or 12th grade English class, sit down, and as I sit down, put my books down, beside me is a guy we, we called the bird growing up. He was that kind of guy. I grew up in northwestern Pennsylvania. In the wintertime, he's the He's that crazy white guy, that would, white kid that would come out with his hair wet so the ice crystals would form, no jacket, et cetera, et cetera. He got his nickname because, because he liked to climb to the top of little saplings and ride them over to the ground. That was the bird. And the bird was sitting beside me in 12th grade English class. And when it was before class started, people were still coming in. The teacher's up front. She's writing on the board. The bird turns and looks at me and says, I've known you for a long time. Yeah. And I've been watching you, and there's something different about you. I see that you carry that Bible on the top of your stack of books. Can you tell me what it's all about? By this time, the room has filled. The teacher has stopped writing, and she's turned around. And everybody in the room has turned around, and they're all looking at me, this big, popular, black Christian jock involved with Youth for Christ, fan club, on and on. It got so quiet in that room, I've never heard it that quiet any place before in my life. It's so quiet, they're all waiting for me to respond. And all I knew to say to him was, oh man, we'll talk about this later. And there was a sigh of disappointment from the whole room. Everybody turned back around and went back to doing what they were doing. Now the YFC group helped me to understand when, when I made the mistake of telling them I'd been invited to the, the 12th grade prom, they, they looked at me and pulled me aside and said, oh, you know, 
as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. That's what they told me. The message was, you're not supposed to go to the prom. Instead, they had their own banquet at the local YMCA. I ended up going to the banquet at the Y. After that banquet at the Y, the next morning, I get back into school, get into the homeroom, and there are pockets of, of kids all around crying. When I walked in, some of the guys pulled me aside and said, uh, last night at the prom, the bird had already been accepted in the military. He knew where he was going when he graduated. He, they decided they were going to have a beer party out in the woods. So they, they went out in the woods and they built their bonfire. These guys were telling me this. And the bird decided after he had enough to drink that he's going to find the tallest tree in the woods. He's going to climb that tree. He's going to ride it to the ground. His parting gift and feat, you know, for Meadville, Pennsylvania. He climbed, got to the top, and they said he started to ride it down and it broke off at his feet. And they said they watched him as he's holding on to this branch as he's tumbling down to the ground. And they watched as he hit the ground and they watched the life ooze out of him. And he was gone. And I've always remembered, two people died for Rick Gray. Jesus died to save his soul. And the bird died to make him get serious about this walk and this talk. I started getting serious after that. Started studying, starting trying to figure out, so why, God, why? He was the third one that asked me what happened to me. I didn't have an answer for him. I never wanted to be in a position where I didn't have an answer again. Those early years in wrestling, you know, it was brand new to our city. I was at junior high school when this white guy tapped me on the shoulder. We knew he was a new wrestling coach to the city. Tapped me on the shoulder and said, I want you to come out for wrestling. We didn't know what wrestling was. My family always did basketball. My oldest brother was captain of the Air Force basketball team. My next oldest brother got it, you know, he was spotted by the Atlanta Falcons, invited to come to the training camp. Stuff like that. It's the kind of family I grew up in. So I guess I was supposed to play basketball. They called my oldest brother Rabbit because he could jump in the air and stay there for so long. They dubbed him the rabbit all across the newscasters, all across northwestern Pennsylvania. My next brother, they called the bunny, because where he could dribble that ball and stuff. Well, they, they wanted to call me Cottontail. <laughs> so I didn't play basketball. I wrestled. But I wasn't very good at it. None of us were, because it was brand new to our city. So the coach spent a lot of time and energy teaching us, trying to teach us what it was all about. Two basic positions. The standing position where you, thought you, you learned to take a person down to the mat, score points. But the other position, and probably the more important position for us, was to get down on all fours and to lock our joints when we were on all fours and practice being immovable. No matter what anybody did to you, that was supposed to be our safe position. You know, our joints were locked. They could slide our body across the mat, but only on all four. It was safe. They, nobody could pin us. I remember being out in, in wrestling matches then, and with hundreds of people in the stands screaming, yelling, shouting, it was only the coach's voice that I could hear. For some reason, it just stood out above everybody else, and it's usually when we were in trouble, the coach would be standing there yelling, Get back to your base. Get back to your base. What we, he was trying to say to, to all of us was, 
Get back to that, that position on all fours and lock your joints and, and practice being immovable. You're safe there. As I'm making my way growing more deeply into this Christian walk, you know, they've, they've remember it's a very conservative group, they've shoved a Schofield Bible in my hand. And they're helping me to understand that, you know, 2 Timothy 2.15, all scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it's profitable for, and they just run it all down. And I'm made to understand this is the word of God. And this word of God is, this is the base that you stand on. This is your safe place. Whenever you get in trouble in this world, this is the base. So I'm there growing into this Bible, which is the word of God. And yeah, anytime I get in trouble, it's like, what does the word have to say for me to help me with this situation? Help me with this. Help me with this. Help me with this. And don't you know, I go off to seminary. When I get to seminary, my professor looks at me and says, don't you know there are mistakes in that book? There are problems. What do you mean there are problems? This is the word of God. I was taught to believe in the plenary, what is it, verbal plenary inspiration of the word of God. Every word in this Bible is true. It's Holy Spirit inspired. It's God breathed. It's every, it's, what do you mean there's a mistake? And then I'm looking Exodus chapter 12 and verse 40. We've been talking about it in my class a little bit. Reading and it says, and the, you know, the children of Israel were in Egypt, you know, bondage for 40 years. I'm sorry, for 430 years. 430 years. Every place I've read, it says, and they were there for 430 years. Then all of a sudden, somebody opens up. They said, don't you understand that every single translation that we have today is taken from the Hebrew Masoretic text. So every single translation that we have today has that phrase there. Has, it's, it reads like that. They were there for 430 years. And then somebody took me and showed me, they showed me the Latin Vulgate. They showed me the Greek manuscript, Greek Septuagint. They showed me even an earlier, they said all these predate. They all predate the Masoretic text said, look at what Josephus had to say. Pulled the same passage out, and the passage reads, you know, and the children there were in Canaan. They were there in Canaan and Egypt for 430 years. Somehow, when it got to the Masoretic text, they had dropped out in Canaan and. And it made a, it just changed the meaning, the whole meaning of the text. And all of a sudden, I'm confronted with the reality that there are problems with my base. What do you do? Well, in seminary, I start studying. All of a sudden, I fall under the spell of people like a Joseph Okello, who introduces me to philosophy. And I start studying Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein did a lot of his work in the area of truth. So I'm, I'm reading Wittgenstein and, and his, uh, his take on truth. And what Wittgenstein finally comes to is that truth is not static. Truth is not standing still. It's just not, if, if, if any time you find yourself standing on truth and you get on there and you get on all fours and you lock your joints and you practice being immovable, it just might be that truth moves and you suddenly find yourself standing on a lie and you become a fanatic. 
Wait a minute. John 14, 6. Didn't Jesus say, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I believe that. Doesn't it say the same yesterday, today, and forever? So surely I can, my base, I can stand on him and be immovable, and, and I'm safe. I'm, but truth is not static. Is there a problem? Come to the place where I realized the problem was me. Truth is not static. Though Jesus remains the same yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus is not just standing in one place fixed. Jesus wants me to grow. So Jesus, as truth, is moving. And his expectation is that I'm going to latch on to him. I'm going to grab on to him. And I'm going to hold on for dear life as he moves me from this place to this place to this place as I grow into what he wants me to be. You know what a barker is? You go to a carnival, you know, all this crowd is in the fairway going after whatever, and there's these people on the side standing on a box, and they're barking out at them, trying to persuade them to come and look behind their tent to check out what's in there. Realize that I'm becoming a barker. I'm a barker in this carnival. I'm shouting at the crowd out there, come and check out what's in my tent. To what do you make your appeal? To get them to come and check you out when there's all these competing ideologies out there trying to woo them to come. What box do you stand on to be firm and secure and safe and sure? What base? Well, I'm standing there shouting and yelling and realizing, you know something? The only thing that I can appeal to that's any different from all of the rest is the resurrection. What makes my base different, what makes my God sure, is the fact that I serve a living God who's in the world today. It's fascinating. So all of a sudden, I'm beginning to realize he, he's the solid rock. He's the sure ground. He's that place where I can, I can, I can, I can rest and lock my joints and be immovable just as long as I wrap myself around him. And I love the image in my heart and mind of John laying his head on his bosom and being loved like that and loving back. And that's where I want to find myself. So let me lock my arms around you, Lord, and lay my head on your bosom. And Lord, I need for you to be my rock. I've come to the place, and I'm almost done. I've come to the place where I realize that it's on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground, sinking sand. So I walk through this life, through this world, and simply with one message for you. When you're out there barking, nobody asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. Make your appeal to the resurrection. And that'll point them to Jesus. And hang yourself around Jesus and hold on. Because he will not permit you to stand in one place, locked and fixed. But he's going to expect you to hold on and move with him. Because he really is the way. And he really is the truth. And he really is the life. 
thank you all so much. God bless you. I really do mean that. Let me pray. Father God, we're so glad that you love us. We're so glad you give us an opportunity to bow before you, to grow, to know you, and to love you. Father, to be all that you desire for us to be, teach us how to hold on to you, to hold on for dear life. You are the reason for our being, and it's in your love that we find the faith and the hope that we need. I know now that being justified by faith, this faith, I have peace with you through Jesus Christ. Can there be any greater joy than to know that you are at peace with your maker? Bless us now and keep us in Jesus' name.